as of late. We've got folks from Florida this morning, Colorado, Iowa, Washington, Texas. And so uh, welcome, welcome. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to all of you. Um, it's good to be uh, here with you today. You know, in my house, we look for signs of Christmas, one of which is, of course, singing hymns and gifts wrapped around the tree. And for me in particular, I don't know if you see the glow or not, but it's, uh, it's glitter bombs <laughs> from the girls' dresses. Um, but it's, it's good to be in worship together. Um, this morning, we're going to turn to what is traditionally known as the Christmas story. Luke's gospel in chapter 2 is, is the glue that holds most of Christmas together. It's the, it's the scripture that is read throughout Handel's Messiah. It's the same scripture that uh, we hear at the end of Charlie Brown's Christmas. And um, if it seems as though I've jumped the gun on you, let me assure you, I have. I have. Uh, there was an article on the front page of CNN this week that caught my eye. And the subject was destroyed friendships and divided families this Christmas season. It was the top of the news feed on my phone, and I read it, and my first thought was, wow, CNN, that's the best we can do the week of Christmas, grabbing the low-hanging fruit off the tree, bah humbug. But as I reflected on it, um, there's some truth to that, isn't there? We're more relationally distant than we have been in previous Christmases. One of two ways, really. The first might be that we're just physically distant from one another. I make sure to, to remember in my mind every time I step up here, I'm preaching to not only all of you, but individuals in their homes who can't be with us. But second, we also find ourselves um, a little bit more divided in the values that we once thought we shared together as even family and friends. And it seems to me that with that kind of relational distance, that new feeling that we have, there comes this, um, we'll call it unspoken loneliness and longingness in a season like this. And so the reason that I've jumped into Luke 2 earlier this year is, um, is that Luke's gospel wants us to see how God infiltrated that exact space in a very tangible manner. I want us to shift our thinking um, even right now before we begin to step into the, the Christmas week this year. Because the story of Jesus' birth is the story of God coming to extinguish that kind of hopelessness that's within us. And I want us to see what this means with two word pictures we're going to look at this morning. I promise you, neither one of these word pictures are original. Neither of them are the, the first time that you've heard them in your ears. But my hope is that these two images might shift our thinking as we step into this week together. And here's what I want us to see in our time today. I made it rhyme so you'll remember. Swaddling cloths and feeding troughs. Say it with me. Swaddling cloths and feeding troughs. Let me pray with us, and then uh, we'll jump in together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christmas. Lord, for all the traditions that come with it, for the reminder of joy and hope, peace and love. And yet, God, we also know that we still live in a very broken and challenging world. Lord, the very world that you stepped into, that you infiltrated. And so, God, we ask this morning that as we focus yet again on the Christmas story, Lord, would you bring the uniqueness to mind? Lord, would you help us not just set it aside as that book that we've read a thousand times on the shelf, 
But God, make it fresh on our ears again, we pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. So our reading comes to us from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 together. Let's hear now God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I'll never forget how inadequate I felt when when Jen and I had our first child. The nurse uh, took the, the, the baby from the doctor. She was screaming and they carry her over to this table with lights and they're weighing her, they're measuring her, making the, the classic footprints, doing all the things that nurses do. And it felt like chaos in the room, even though I know they were fully organized. The wailing and the, the machines going off, the team conversing back and forth. And then suddenly, one of the nurses pulls out this hospital blanket. You've probably seen the one. It's got red and blue stripes on it. And the nurse takes our newborn baby and she pulls some kind of ninja moves with this thing. She's folding it. She's pulling it. She's tucking it. And before you know it, our little girl goes quiet. She's now in this cocoon of of whimpering. You know, they make those things so tight you can't move an arm or a leg even if you wanted to. But they hand her to my wife, Jen, and all is well. And in that moment, I made this mental note, like, next time that girl gets upset, I'm going in for dad of the year, and I'm going to do that exact same thing. So fast forward to 3 a.m. that night, and little Taylor wakes up screaming. We're already sleep-deprived, and I thought, this is it. This is my moment. This is where I shine. So I rolled out of bed and successfully changed my first diaper, but she's, of course, upset about this new development in her life, and she's screaming mad. But it's all good. I kept my cool. I thought, just do what the nurse did. So I fold this blanket up. I pull it this way. I tuck it that way. Lay her back in the crib. And just as my head hits the pillow, she kicks right out of it, screaming mad. So I went in for a second attempt. But this time I was scattered. I got all my folds wrong. I had no idea what I was doing. And she kicked right back out again. And now I'm past the point of no return. The nurse comes charging in. Jen wakes up. And I kid you not, I got benched for the rest of the game. That nurse literally pointed in the corner and said, Dad, you can go back to bed. You know, for thousands of years and billions of babies, the story of swaddling cloths is the most universal story of humanity. Every one of us in this room knows what it is to be wrapped up in a blanket and held by our parents as an infant. It might not look how they do it in 2020, but this practice of wrapping your child in some kind of cloth is probably the most obvious act of child rearing in the world. It would be my guess that all nations, all tribes, every language, all cultures, they all involve this sort of practice with some kind of fabric 
wrapped around their newborn. And it got me thinking of all the details Luke could write about in this story of Jesus' birth. Why would you write about swaddling cloths? Ever wondered that? I mean, why would you waste your time with such an ordinary, obvious detail in light of such an extraordinary moment of history? This is one of the only places this word swaddling cloth is used in the scriptures. Look at this in Luke 2.7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him up in cloths, and laid him in a manger. The operative Greek word here is spargano. It means to wrap something in strips, plural, of fabric. But it's such an obvious observation. Just consider with me all the things that Luke didn't say here. You ever found yourself in a room when like all the new moms get together to talk about birth? Anybody ever been there? (laughs) Right? Like there are plenty of details to go around in that room. I mean, really, Luke could have went anywhere with this. What were Joseph's first words to his son? How is Mary feeling right after she gave birth? Was it an easy or was it a hard labor? Who cut the umbilical cord? Did he fuss or was he quiet? We know none of this. No, the scriptures would rather you know the most basic detail of all births worldwide. They wrapped him in swaddling cloths. It seems to me that the more that you press into this sort of trivial detail, the more you begin to realize there had to be a reason. Right, I believe that when God gave us his word, details matter. Every detail has a purpose. So what is it? The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, Almighty God is wrapped up like every other child born on this planet in ordinary rags. I'll always remember how Sinclair Ferguson put this years ago. Let me paraphrase. He said it like this. Anybody have a dog that you just absolutely love? This one's going to hit home. He says, if you have a dog and you love that pet, would you ever consider becoming the dog and putting the collar on? Would it ever occur to you that it would be good to sit down with your dog and eat some dog food? The idea is absurd, right? Maybe it's time we focus on this swaddle. You ever been through something that you were certain, you were sure that no one else in your life could understand? It's not a matter of if, really. It's more a matter of when. A crisis, a death, a layoff, an illness, a darkness. What if those swaddling cloths were proof that Jesus is not only God with us, he's also the one who's experienced every bit of what it is to be us? Whatever it is, Jesus has been there. The swaddling cloths were just the beginning. Christ suffered poverty unlike anything most of us can comprehend. His parents were dirt poor. He himself told his followers, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And his life was plagued with conflict too. From birth onward, everywhere he turned, there was some powerful figure gunning for him. And much like you and I, he knows what it is to fight off the lure of temptation He had Satan himself whispering into his ear. He knows what it is to be judged by strangers. He knows what it means to be betrayed by the closest of friends. Maybe this week you're heading to go be with some family, which means family dynamics. Jesus might have been perfect, but his family was far from it. He feels you. 
He understands the heartbreak of relationships. He knows firsthand what it is to lose a loved one. Maybe your health is a wreck and you're suffering right now. He's been there too. The shortest phrase in all the New Testament is what? Jesus wept. And they wrapped him in swaddling cloths. When Isaiah 9, 6 talks about this wonderful counselor, I think it's important that we not get confused or misunderstand what God's word is getting at. He's not referring to some self-help hotline. He's not talking about a, a mere good listener. Isaiah's not talking about a therapist who reflects back on our thoughts in the midst of our troubles. No, Isaiah is referring to the one who not only hears us, but knows what it is to be us. Jesus walked right where we walked. He's experienced all the trials that we've suffered through. He knows everything about you and I inside and out. And here's why. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 2.18, up on the screens here. Because he himself suffered, because he himself was tempted, he can help us in our own trials and temptations. You know, when we say that God is with us, it goes so much deeper than a friend sitting next to you in your living room. This swaddling cloth is the differentiator from every other religion in the world. No other supposed God stepped down into humanity to experience life as Jesus did. No other God can say, no, really, I get it. I've been there. I'm with you. No other God understands that longing inside of your heart. Really, just ponder that. How is it that the creator of human hands now allows himself to be held and swaddled by his own creation? You know, the birth of Jesus is in many respects not unlike any other birth before or after it. A baby boy wrapped in the love of his mother. We all know that. And yet there's this second piece of our lesson that's different than any other birth we've ever known. And it comes packed with significance. Anybody remember what the image is? Swaddling cloths and feeding troughs. Let me read to you the most oversung lyric of any children's pageant ever. Away in a manger, no, no crib for his bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. A few summers ago, we had some good friends visit us from down south, and they had planned a family vacation for years to go to Yellowstone National Park. And you could feel their excitement the minute they walked through the door. We talked about grizzly bears and the boiling river. We talked about the paint pots. We talked about the bighorn sheep. We warned them not to pet the bison. But as they left our house that night, it hit me just how good we have it here. You know, we often stick up our nose at uh, those, those tourists along the road who are taking pictures of the elk in someone's backyard because we've seen it all. We've done it all. We've watched it play out before. And I share that because I feel like we come to Christmas with that same mindset. Like, of course he was born in a manger. Preacher, get on. What would it be like to experience Christmas for the first time again? To let the most mundane details hit us square in the face again? What if we just took the next few days that we have and we poured over every word of the Christmas story as though it was a brand new book on the shelves? You know, every baby in the world knows what it is to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. 
But how many know what it is to make their bed in a manger? In Latin, that word means to chew. Jesus was literally placed on the dinner table for ox and cattle. That was his crib. And we know the immediate reason for this, right? There was no room in the inn. Everyone knows that. It was census season. Houses were full. But let me ask it like this. Assuming that God is all-powerful, and he is, of all the ways Jesus came to earth, why in the world would he choose a manger? We call him a newborn king. This is no place for royalty. You know, they say you are who you hang out with, right? A president is accompanied by his cabinet. A CEO, she's accompanied by her associates. A doctor is accompanied by nurses and surgical techs. Jesus is accompanied by barn animals. I mean, by the world's standards, this is an embarrassing story, a humiliating story. All my life, when I left the front door open in my house, I was asked the sarcastic question, what, were you born in a barn? But we know this is anything but embarrassment, right? God's word is revealing something to us significant, something that changes the world. Just look at this paradox of power. Let's go back to verse 1 of our chapter. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke wants you to know Jesus is surrounded by power brokers. Caesar and Quirinius. Last week we learned about King Herod. These are figures of historic proportions. And yet in this same chapter, we find out about a king who is so powerful, he's born in the middle of nowhere. The first visitors that come to see this man are anything but elite. They're shepherds. They have no gifts. And on their way back out the door, they brought no credible witness. No one knew who they were. How is it that this Christ child who's born in the loneliness of a stable is the same Jesus that now billions, literally billions of people around the world will celebrate this week? And a manger becomes the most popular, well-known prop on the planet. Read this again with me in verse 12. The angels come to the shepherds, right? They say, we bring you good news of great joy. Your Savior has been born. Here's the important part. Look at this. They say, this will be your sign. You will find this baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. You know, if you've ever felt yourself feeling a bit distant from Christmas, maybe even this year, this is your sign. It it wasn't you that came to him. It was he that came to you. The manger points us to this reality that all of us have full access to this king. From the little kids on the stage, it's just the right height. To the most vulnerable in society, it's just the right place. The manger points us to this reality that all of us have access. Anyone. This isn't a monarch that doesn't know his peasants. This is a king who became one of them. I can promise you, there is not another God. No other story of hope that begins with heaven come down like this. Where the Lord on high humbles himself to a feeding trough below. And here's why. Look at this in 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. In the Bible back in Psalm 45 we learn about the Lord's robe coming from ivory palaces. 
The book of Isaiah talks about this massive throne that God sits on with this billowing smoke. The angels are singing praises so loud that the doorposts of his house shake. But God's word tells us though he was rich, he became poor. Literally left the mansion for the manger. Why? So that by his poverty you might become rich. Not in money or in wealth, but in company. So that in your loneliness you would know you're not alone. So that in your longing you would find out again what it is to be fulfilled in him. Swaddling cloths and feeding troughs. You know, this isn't just the theme of Jesus' birth. Think about this. This is the story of our salvation. That same place where the child was placed. That place where animals eat their food, right? That same Christ later comes to a place where he breaks bread with his disciples and says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And that same child that was wrapped in swaddling cloths and held by the love of his mother, he would soon be wrapped in blood-stained strips of linen and placed in a tomb for us. What does it mean to have God with us? It means that we worship the one who knows what it is to be us and yet loved you and me enough to save us from the sin that he never committed. You know, I think the person often sitting to our right or our left, we, we, we think that we know them and yet we're all kind of like an onion. We only peel back so many layers. There's really only one who knows you inside and out, knows what it is to be you. And the story of Christmas tells us that. That Jesus knows us firsthand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. Look at this up on your screens. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly this week? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be on high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. Every year, it's not just this year. Every year, all of us walk into Christmas a little bit different. Some of us are still in the hospital right now, wishing that we'd be home. Others of us will be with family, not of all who will see eye to eye. For some of us, it'll be the first Christmas without that loved one. For others of us, it'll be the first Christmas with that loved one. For our children, it's all about surprises and the joy of presents. For adults, it'll be last-minute shopping and late-night wrapping. But here's the miracle. Jesus knows exactly where you're at. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, it's crazy to me how even the small details of God's word reveal really, really big things. This week, here's my challenge to us. Open up the familiar story. Do it with someone else and go on a scavenger hunt. Look for those small details as though you've never read this story before. And here's what I bet you'll find. You will find a God who is far, far closer to us than we could ever imagine or dream. Let me pray for us as we step into Christmas Eve. Let's pray. God, would you just help us to make Christmas more than a day?
Lord, would you help us to find this excitement and this anticipation all year long? God, in our weariness, we know that you tell us you are strong. And so, God, I just ask for every person in this room this morning that as we step into this week, it would be a refresher, a renewal, a restart. That we would know that you are with us and that it wouldn't just be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week, but it would be every day of our lives. God, that you would shift our thinking that you would keep us mindful that you know exactly where we're at. You know exactly what we're feeling, and you've been there. And yet, Lord, unlike all of us, you were without sin and died for us. So, Lord, I just pray as we anticipate and prepare to lift a candle in the air in a few days, that you would keep us mindful of what it is to have the light shining in the darkness. Lord, what it is to walk with hope even in hopelessness and despair. Lord, watch over each of us now as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.